Gentlemen, we do not stop till nightfall. What about breakfast? You've already had it. We've had one, yes. What about second breakfast? Don't think he knows about second breakfast, Pip. What about elevensies? Luncheon, afternoon tea, dinner, supper. He knows about them, doesn't he? Welcome back to Second Breakfast, episode four of Gollum and the Ring. Uh, I've lit the fire, it's crackling away wonderfully uh, to the left of me. I'm sat in the armchair, I have a drink by my side, and I have a few books and some time to discuss The Return of the Shadow of Gollum and the Ring. So I hope everyone's well. I hope you've had uh, a good couple of weeks since uh, our last our last catch up. But we've been looking at you know how Lord of the Rings, that wonderful wonderful book, uh, has developed from the Professor's inception of the idea and how that then develops into the the finished uh, the finished text. So as always, I'm going to highlight a few of the books that I'm going to use today. Uh, these will be quoted from throughout uh, the episode and they are as follows. So we have obviously volume six, The Return of the Shadow, which is part one of the history of the Lord of the Rings by the late great Christopher Tolkien. We have the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien edited by Humphrey Carpenter with the assistance again of Christopher Tolkien. We have the biography uh, J.R.R. Tolkien written by Humphrey Carpenter. And we have The Lord of the Rings, A Reader's Companion by Wayne G. Hammond and Christina Skull. And we also have The Lord of the Rings. Now, as people who have listened before to Second Breakfast will know, I do have quite a number of these. I'm taking the opportunity to use a different one each episode so that I can take them from the, the shelf and actually get to use them rather than them just looking pretty or uh, in the odd shelfy. So this one, this week, uh, I am delighted to be able to use is one that's quite recent to my collection. It's the um, hardback one volume centenary edition published by HarperCollins uh, in 1991. And it's got uh, written on the back, uh, Tolkien, the centenary, 1892 to 1992. And I picked this uh, wonderful book up. 
with its amazing front cover that I'll come to um, in more detail in a minute of, of Gandalf striding through the grass in what looks like rainy conditions, staff in hand. Um, but this has a bit of an interesting story to it in, in where I actually got this book from. I picked this beauty up from a small hidden away bookshop which I go to as often as I can um, in Lyme Regis, Dorset. Now this is a place that is close to my heart because it's very close to where I uh, grew up as a child. It's still only about half an hour's drive away um, and it's a wonderful uh, it's a wonderful sort of seaside town where uh, you know it's great in the summer but it's equally lovely in the winter as well. And for people who are um, really sort of good with their history of, of Tolkien, they will know that Lyme Regis is a place that's really close to Tolkien's heart as well. It's an area that he spent a lot of time at during his childhood years, and that then followed through sort of adulthood as well. In um, the biography, Humphrey Carpenter remarks that Ronald loved the scenery of Lyme and enjoyed sketching it on wet days, though when it was fine he was happiest rambling along the shore or visiting the spectacular landslip that had recently occurred on the cliffs near the town. Once he found a prehistoric jawbone there which he supposed to be a piece of petrified dragon. Later, during holidays at Lyme Regis in 1927 and 1928, he drew pictures of scenes from the Silmarillion. These show how clearly he visualized the landscapes in which his legends were set. For in several of the drawings, the scenery of Lyme itself is absorbed into the stories and invested with mystery. So this was a really special place uh, for the professor. And I love the bit about the, uh, the fossil bone that he found because Lyme Regis is famous for uh, its fossils, for some quite amazing finds on the beach underneath the cliffs. And it's just nice to sort of think that the professor was doing what I've done as a child and countless other people have done as well. So if you ever do get the chance, come down and see Lyme Regis, it's brilliant. Now, the cover painting, entitled Gandalf the Grey, is a very famous painting. I'm sure you, you will have known um, about it already. You'll have, you'll have recognised it when I've put sort of the photo um, out into our Facebook group, into Twitter as well. And it's by John Howe. It shows a determined and purposeful Gandalf the Grey striding through long grass, staff in hand, and... It's just, it's just fabulous. Now I had a little look because I thought, well, let's let's see if I can find a bit more information about this actual this actual painting. So on John Howe's website, he discusses his artwork, and it's well worth a um, well worth a, a check if you if you get the opportunity to to have a look at it. Um, do do go onto his website because there's loads of information there. But with regards to this specific painting. Um, he has the following to say about it. Originally done for the 1991 Tolkien calendar, 
Gandalf has travelled a long way since. This painting is emblematic of many things, and I have a lot to say about it, so bear with me. It all started with a photo of a tree, and a desire to have a go at doing Gandalf. Everything came fairly naturally, although I did a lot of fiddling with the pose and angle of view before I was satisfied. Once it was more or less laid out, the background was worked up in a succession of washes, each time going back over the whole thing to subdue the details and push them back into the distance. Once through the mist and down in the grass, things are easier. It's much simpler to control deeper tones than light ones. Much of the grass was done with a fine pen and the nearer grass is done with pencil crayon on a dark ground. The tree and the airbrush to block in the gathering darkness of the storm came next. I do occasionally use a lot of airbrush but always over top of brushwork. Otherwise airbrushing is fine for cars and plate glass but there's not much warmth in it. Which leaves Gandalf. As I taped him over, I was naturally stuck with a predetermined silhouette, but with the exception of the hand holding the staff, which is far too weak, the rest worked out. I long despaired of ever getting some movement into him. He seemed so monolithic, with the huge cloak and skirts of his coat. But he eventually got striding. Most of his motion comes from the tree, and the raindrops, and the layout. I have this thing about rain, by the way. I always try to draw it at the same angle, falling in the same direction. There is no meteorological excuse. It's, of course, part of landscape symbolism, more of a mythological shorthand than anything else. The picture has since become very popular, thanks to its association with the one-volume edition of The Lord of the Rings, and more especially thanks to Peter Jackson and his obsession with the ridiculous hat. Here comes the end of the story in 1997 at a show of my work in the French Ardennes. The painting was stolen along with 10 others during the night of May the 18th to 19th. It was never recovered. So I thought that was just really interesting and I wanted to share it with you guys. Um, incredible to think that you know the, the painting itself was, was eventually stolen um, and fascinating to sort of see how the picture itself developed and how John Howe, you know, how he used his, his great skill to sort of build the painting up and how he struggled to make Gandalf appear as if he was striding through that grass. And looking at the picture now in front of me, it really does look as if he's moving. There is definitely a purpose to him. He looks like he's moving fast and with a direction in mind. And, and the rain that you can see, as he touched on, it is all in the same direction, um, slightly at an angle, coming down um, in amongst the grasses. Um, the tree as well, dark in the background, um, suggests a sort of menacing a menacing aspect to the painting as well. I just love it. I think it's a it's a fantastic uh, piece of art. Okay, so let's get back to the story and the return of the shadow. In our last episode, if you recall, we saw some hobbits with some unfamiliar names leaving the Shire on the road to Rivendell. 
we saw the story start to take a dark and quite menacing turn with a meeting on the road, changing from a white horse to a black horse and from Gandalf to a black rider. We saw elements of Three's company emerge, uh, not least a meeting and a conversation with Gildor and the elves, but the narrative was certainly lacking the backstory uh, provided by the later written chapter two, The Shadow of the Past. Ultimately, the idea of the Black Riders and the Ring was, was clearly evolving quickly in the Professor's mind, and this more light-hearted tone that he'd established in The Hobbit was going to be replaced very quickly by the more menacing Lord of the Rings. This, um, this sort of juncture, where we are at the moment, is we've reached kind of the end of the second chapter that the Professor wrote. And he wrote three chapters uh, originally, all all in sync, all, all one after the other. Um, and this is sort of the end of the second chapter. That's where we've got to so far. But this episode is not going to continue into the third consecutive original chapter. It's going to take a bit of a sort of a sidestep and it's going to show, hopefully, how the ring and the importance of the ring has evolved and, and is starting to, to form and take a different direction in the professor's mind. It would perhaps be quite helpful, I think, if anyone who wants to go back and refresh their memories, maybe read parts of chapter two of the uh, Lord of the Rings, The Shadow of the Past. Um, it's a big one, it's 23 pages in total, but it's a great one as well. I always love this, this chapter. Um, but this will, certainly if you read the bit with, with Gandalf and Frodo discussing the ring, this is gonna help you appreciate better how the story changes and develops over time. Uh, and maybe make tonight's episode a little bit easier to follow. So without further ado, let's uh, pick up the story by looking backwards. Following the abandoned idea for Bingo and his travelling companions to meet Gandalf on the road and the storytelling instead changing to black riders and a meeting with elves, Christopher Tolkien comments that the manuscript developing the character of Gildor began instead as a conversation between Bingo and a yet unnamed individual. I have suggested that by this stage, my father knew a good deal more about the riders and the ring than Bingo did, or than he permitted Gildor to tell, and evidence for this is found in the manuscript draft. This begins, at any rate, as a draft for a part of the conversation between Bingo and Gildor, but the talk here moves into topics which my father excluded from the typescript version. Gildor is not yet named, in fact, and indeed, it was apparently in this text that he emerged as an individual. At first, the conversation is between Bingo and an undifferentiated plural, they. So in a very interesting section of the manuscript, which was not included by the professor in the initial typescript called Three's Company and Four's More, um, it introduces the Black Rider for the first time as such. Then Gandalf did not tell you anything. You were not actually escaping. 
What do you mean? What from? Well, this black rider, they said. I don't understand them at all. Then Gandalf told you nothing? N not about them. He, he warned Bilbo a long time about the ring, of course. Don't use it too much, he used to say. And only use it for proper purposes. I mean, do not use it except for jest or for escaping from danger and annoyance. Don't use it for harm or for finding out other people's secrets. And, of course, not for theft or worse things. Because it may get the better of you. I did not understand. I seldom saw Gandalf after Bilbo went away, but about a year ago he came one night and I told him of the plan I was beginning to make for leaving Bag End. What about the ring, he asked. Are you being careful? Do be careful, otherwise you will be overcome by it. I had, as a matter of fact, hardly ever used it, and I did not use it again after that talk until my birthday party. Does anybody else know about it? I cannot say, but I don't think so. Bilbo kept it very secret. He always told me that I was the only one who knew about it in the Shire. I never told anyone else except Oddo and Frodo, who were my best friends. I have tried to be to them what Bilbo was to me, but even to them I never spoke of the ring until they agreed to come with me on this journey a few months ago. They would not tell anyone, though we often speak of it among ourselves. Well, what do you make of it all? I can see you are bursting with secrets, but I cannot guess any of them. Well, said the elf, I don't know much about this. You must find Gandalf as quick as you can. Rivendell, I think, is the place to go to, but it is my belief that the Lord of the Ring is looking for you. Is that bad or good? Bad. But how bad, I cannot say. Bad enough if he only wants the ring back. Worse if he wants payment. Very bad indeed if he wants you as well. We fancy that he must at last, after many years, have found out that Bilbo had it. Hence the asking for Baggins. But somehow the search for Baggins failed, and then something must have been discovered about you. But by strange luck, you must have held your party and vanished, just as they found out where you lived. You put off the scent, but they are hot on it now. Who are they? Servants of the Lord of the Ring. People who have passed through the ring. So we have Bingo speaking to somebody as of yet, unnamed. We do not know. We have a reference to an elf. Suggests this will be Gildor, but um, it's, uh, it's an unknown at this stage. Now what follows is a second passage, um, which again is Bingo speaking with somebody. It could be Gandalf, it could be Gildor. Um, it might even be as of yet, still undecided. But remember, this is where the story is slowly but surely providing the information, the backstory, which we know is in Chapter 2. We know is Frodo talking with Gandalf at Bag End. But at this stage, this whole premise is developing. So we don't know for sure whether Bingo is talking to Gandalf or Gildor. Yes, if the ring overcomes you, you yourself become permanently invisible. And it is a horrible cold feeling. Everything becomes very faint, like grey ghost pictures against the black background in which you live. But you can smell more clearly than you can hear or see. 
You have no power, however, like a ring, of making other things invisible. You are a ring wraith. You can wear clothes, but you are under the command of the Lord of the Rings. I expect that one or more of these ring wraiths have been sent to get the ring away from hobbits. In the very ancient days, the Ring Lord made many of these rings and sent them out through the world to snare people. He sent them to all sorts of folk. The elves had many, and there are now many elf wraiths in the world. But the Ring Lord cannot rule them. The goblins got many, and the invisible goblins are very evil and holy under the Lord. Dwarfs, I don't believe, had any. Some say the rings don't work on them, they are too solid. Men had few, but they were most quickly overcome, and the men wraiths are also servants of the Lord. Other creatures got them. Do you remember Bilbo's story of Gollum? We don't know where Gollum comes in, certainly not elf nor goblin, he is probably not dwarf. We rather believe he really belongs to an ancient sort of hobbit, because the ring seems to act just the same for him and you. Long ago, he belonged to a wise, clever-handed and quiet-footed little family. But he disappeared underground, and though he used the ring often, the Lord evidently lost track of it. Until Bilbo brought it out to light again. Of course, Gollum himself may have heard news. All the mountains were full of it after the battle, and tried to get back the ring, or told the Lord. So in these passages, Christopher points out that through Bingo raising the subject of the ring in connection with the appearance of the black riders on the road, we are actually getting a glimpse of the professor's own thinking. Um, this is showing us what he was working through in his mind with regards to how the ring would fit in with this story. We also wonderfully get our first use of the Lord of the Ring, and then later the Lord of the Rings. Um, and Christopher remarks, you know, this is the first time that these are down in a uh, sort of manuscript or typescript. We also see the germ of Gollum's backstory prior to his position in The Hobbit. And we see, we learn that there are multiple rings, although not, not quite the familiar numbers and the familiar you know nine for mortal men seven for the dwarf lords three for the elves that we are uh, expecting to come through in due course now these two papers that i've just read were placed together and although they are clearly not one continuous dialogue they were actually later connected by uh, jrr tolkien with a scribbled note on each that said about ring wraiths. Christopher Tolkien believed that his father decided to have Bingo learn about these matters from the wizard, from Gandalf, rather than from Gildor. And as such, the conversation ends up taking place back in Bag End, much earlier in the time frame as we're used to sort of now looking back at it. Uh, and we have the backstory as readers of the book. 
Now, as I'm about to show you, the professor for a while actually entertained the idea of making this conversation um, appear in the book as, as the foreword. So right at the start, it was going to be a way of beginning the story, showing uh, clearly the history of the ring so that the readers would understand what had happened. Um, and this was going to be a discussion between Gandalf and Bingo that would happen before the big birthday party. One day, long ago, two people were sitting, talking in a small room. One was a wizard and the other was a hobbit, and the room was the sitting room of the comfortable and well-furnished hobbit hole known as Bag End, Underhill, on the outskirts of Hobbiton, in the middle of the Shire. The wizard was of course Gandalf, and he looked much the same as he had always done, though ninety years and more had gone by since he last came into any story that is now remembered. The hobbit was Bingo Bolger Baggins, the nephew, or really first cousin once removed, of old Bilbo Baggins and his adopted heir. Bilbo had quietly disappeared many years before, but he was not forgotten in Hobbiton. Bingo, of course, was always thinking about him, and when Gandalf paid him a visit, their talk usually came back to Bilbo. Gandalf had not been to Hobbiton for some time, since Bilbo disappeared, his visits had become fewer and more secret. The people of Hobbiton had not, in fact, seen, or at any rate, noticed him for many years. He used to come quietly up to the door of Bag End in the twilight and step in without knocking. And only Bingo and one or two of his closest friends knew he had been in the Shire. This evening... He had slipped in in his usual way, and Bingo was more than usually glad to see him, for he was worried and wanted explanations and advice. So I found that fascinating, that we were going to get that story right at the start. That was going to be the way of introducing it all. Um, so we know that changes. We know the professor's uh, movement from you know this idea onwards eventually to chapter two and then presenting it in a in a darker uh, way uh, once the story had already started. So let's read some bits of what would lovingly become chapter two, Shadow of the Past. It's important to say that you know at this stage, this is writings that are without number or title. In the ancient days, the dark master made many rings and he dealt them out lavishly so that they might be spread abroad to ensnare folk. The elves had many, and there are now many elf wraiths in the world. The goblins had some, and their wraiths are very evil, and wholly under the command of the Lord. The dwarfs, it is said, had seven, but nothing could make them invisible. In them it only kindled to flames the fire of greed, and the foundation of each of the seven hordes of the dwarfs of old was a golden ring. In this way the master controlled them, but these hordes are destroyed and the dragons have devoured them and the rings are melted, or so some say. Men had three rings, and others they found in secret places cast away by the elf wraiths. The men wraiths are servants of the Lord and they brought all their rings back to him till at last he had gathered all into his hands again that had not been destroyed by fire, all save one. It fell 
from the hand of an elf as he swam across a river, and it betrayed him, for he was flying from pursuit in the old wars, and he became visible to his enemies, and the goblins slew him. But a fish took the ring, and was filled with madness, and swam upstream, leaping over rocks and up waterfalls until it cast itself on a bank, and spat out the ring, and died. There was, long ago, living by the bank of the stream, a wise, clever-handed and quiet-footed little family. I guess they were of hobbit kind, or akin to the fathers of the fathers of the hobbits. The most inquisitive and curious-minded of that family was called Diagol. He was interested in roots and beginnings. He dived in deep pools. He burrowed under trees and growing plants. He tunnelled into green mounds and he ceased to look up at flowers and hilltops or the birds that are in the upper air. His head and eyes were downward. He found the ring in the mud of the river bank under the roots of a thorn tree and he put it on. And when he returned home, none of his family saw him while he wore it. He was pleased with his discovery and concealed it and he used it to discover secrets and put his knowledge to malicious use, and became sharp-eyed and keen-eared for all that was unpleasant. It is not to be wondered at that he became very unpopular and was shunned, when visible, by all his relatives. They kicked him, and he bit their feet. He took to muttering to himself and gurgling in his throat, so they called him Gollum, and cursed him, and told him to go far away. He wandered in loneliness up the stream and caught fish with his fingers in deep pools and ate them raw. One day, it was very hot, and as he was bending over a pool, he felt a burning on the back of his head, and a dazzling light from the water pained his eyes. He wondered, for he had almost forgotten about the sun, and for the last time, he looked up and shook his fist at it. But as he lowered his eyes again, he saw far ahead the tops of the misty mountains. And he thought suddenly, it would be cool and shady under those mountains. The sun could never find me there. And the roots of those peaks must be roots indeed. There must be great secrets buried there which have not been discovered since the beginning. So he journeyed by night towards the mountains and found a hole out of which a stream issued and he wormed his way in like a maggot in the heart of the hills, and disappeared from all knowledge. And the ring went into the shadows with him, and even the master lost it. But whenever he counted his rings, besides the seven rings that the dwarves have had held and lost, there was also one missing. So we start to see mention of the number of rings we get to see how that backstory for Gollum started. Um, different, definitely, but similarities as well. Lots of that passage I've just read, you will, you will remember, you will nod, oh yes, that's still there, etc., etc. Um, but there are differences. You know, his name was spelt slightly different, you know, Daigol. Um, and actually... We, we know Deagle to be somebody else. So at the moment, Smeagol hasn't been created. We have Gollum, but we don't have Smeagol. Um, we have Daigle instead. 
We have, as I've touched on, you know, the, the number of rings, um, although not yet in any way the famous one ring to rule them verse. You know, we have the elves getting many. We have the goblins, uh, many to some, uh, and now wraiths controlled by the Lord. We have dwarfs um, having originally none uh, because they're too solid to be controlled. Now they're getting seven, uh, which lead to greed for gold. There's also a nice little touch there. If you think back to the Silmarillion, Ole creates seven fathers of the dwarfs. So we have a, we have a sort of mention of that. We have the men. So, you know, before we had few, now we're getting three plus... The text says, any they found cast away by elf wraiths. It emphasises once more how easily turned men are and how they become servants to the Lord. We start to get the notion of what will become the Black Riders. And I love this bit. We get to see the germ of the story that later becomes Isildur's fate. So we know that Isildur has the ring, the ruling ring, and we know that he is the one that is shot by orcs uh, and loses the ring in the river. In this first story, it's an elf. It's an elf that's under attack by goblins. Um, and the ring is then captured by a fish who swims it down the river before dying. And the ring is left on the riverbank for Daigle stroke Gollum to find. And finally, the ring at the moment appears to be on par with all the other rings. The Dark Lord misses it. You know, it is one of the rings that he doesn't have. Um, but there doesn't appear as of yet to be a, um, a hierarchy for the rings. This one is just one of the rings that the Dark Lord has lost. Okay, so let's talk about Gollum for a, a little bit. I think it's important to highlight that at the moment in the in the story, in the in, in the story that the professor is is creating, Gollum is very much um, the fish smacking scamp that we see uh, in in the Hobbit. Um, if you, if you recall, when The Hobbit was um, originally released, Gollum was pathetic, definitely, um, but he wasn't as under the influence of, of the ring, because at the time the professor did not realise fully the, the power the ring had. So there are elements of the story that fit with the original Gollum portrayed in The Hobbit. Now, we know that the edited version post-1951 is a very different Gollum. And the edited version is because of how the story needed to connect following the, um, following the path that the Lord of the Rings was taken with regards to the ring and it being a major player in the story. So the Gollum in these writings is 
the original Gollum, the one of the original Hobbit. He had even made up his mind to get rid of it. But he was too full of malice, if you want to know. I believe he had begun to make a plan that he had not the courage left to carry out. There was nothing new to find out, nothing left but darkness. Nothing to do but cold eating and regretful remembering. He wanted to slip out and leave the mountains and smell the open air, even if it killed him, as he thought it probably would. But that would have meant leaving the ring, and that is not easy to do. The longer you have had the one, the harder it is. It was especially hard for Gollum, as he had had, had a ring for ages, and it hurt him, and he hated it, and he wanted, when he could no longer bear to keep it, to hand it on to someone else to whom it would become a burden. So at this stage, the professor is trying to move the story forward with a less evil and more pathetic Gollum. He wants to try and explain how the ring could have been given away by Gollum to Bilbo back in The Hobbit and fit it into the story that is now being created in The Lord of the Rings. Now obviously this does not work once the ring becomes the master ruling ring. Christopher Tolkien comments that when my father wrote this, he was working within the constraints of the story as originally told in The Hobbit. As The Hobbit first appeared, and until 1951, the story was that Gollum, encountering Bilbo at the edge of the subterranean lake, proposed the riddle game on these conditions. If Precious asks, and it doesn't answer, we eats it, my preciousness. If it asks us, and we doesn't answer, we gives it a present, Gollum. When Bilbo won the contest, Gollum held to his promise and went back in his boat to his island in the lake to find his treasure, the ring, which was to be his present to Bilbo. He could not find it, for Bilbo had it in his pocket, and coming back to Bilbo, he begged his pardon many times. He kept on saying, We are sorry. We didn't mean to cheat. We meant to give it our only present, if it won the competition. Never mind, he, Bilbo, said. The ring would have been mine now, if you had found it, so you would have lost it anyway, and I will let you off on one condition. Yes, what is it? What does it wish us to do, my precious? Help me to get out of these places, said Bilbo. And Gollum did so, and Bilbo said goodbye to the nasty, miserable creature. On the way up through the tunnels, Bilbo slipped on the ring, and Gollum at once missed him, so that Bilbo perceived that the ring was as Gollum had told him. It made you invisible. Now the text also goes on to mention Gollum leaving the Misty Mountains um, and ending up spilling the beans to the Dark Lord. So there's, there's bits of that story that are there at the beginning. Uh, the what a pity Bilbo did not stab the beastly creature line, which is so close to the final uh, line, is there in the in the first in the first sort of drafts. Um, 
apart from one little change, instead of beastly creature, it's a vile creature. Um, there's attempts by Bingo in this text uh, to throw the ring into the fire unsuccessfully. So, you know, I could, I could have read loads of this, but I, I can't for just time purposes as much as, much as anything else. But, you know, there are these, these similarities. Bilbo does try and destroy the ring. Um, there's even a first mention of one of the cracks of earth in the depths of the fiery mountain. So there's a destination, a final destination appearing in the text. And Bingo deciding he must leave Hobbiton to draw the danger away from the Shire uh, does lead to Gandalf then wonderfully suggesting a certain famous birthday party as an exit strategy. And I'm going to read this bit because this bit um, wasn't around for long, shall we say. But it's funny to think that actually the idea had been for or the idea had been for Gandalf to recommend the, the birthday party as a way of leaving Hobbiton. Cheer up, bingo, my lad, said Gandalf, throwing two small logs of wood on the fire and puffing it with his mouth. Immediately the wood blazed up and filled the room with dancing light. No, I don't think you need or should go alone. Why not ask your three best friends to beg them to, order them to, if you must? I mean, the three, the only three, who you have, perhaps indiscreetly, but perhaps with wise choice, told about your secret ring... Oddo, Frodo, and Marmaduke, and actually written above this is Meriadoc. But you must go quickly and make it a joke. Bingo, a joke, a huge joke, a resounding jest. Don't be mournful and serious. Jokes are really in your line. That's what Bilbo liked about you, among other things, if you care to know. And where shall we go, and what shall we steer by, and what shall be our quest, said Bingo, without a trace of a smile or the glimmer of a jest. When the huge joke is over, what then? At present, I have no idea, said Gandalf, quite seriously, and much to Bingo's surprise and dismay. But it will be just the opposite of Bilbo's adventure, to begin with at any rate. You will set out on a journey without any known destination, and as far as you have any object, it will not be to win new treasure, but to get rid of a treasure that belongs, one might say inevitably to you. But you cannot even start without going east, west, south or north. And which shall we choose? Towards danger and yet not too rashly or too straight towards it. Go east, yes. Yes, I have it. Make first for Rivendell and then we shall see. Yes, we shall see then. Indeed, I begin to see already. Suddenly, Gandalf began to chuckle. He rubbed his long, gnarled hands together and cracked the finger joints. He leant forward to Bingo. I have thought of a joke, he said. Just a rough plan. You can set your comic wits to work on it. And his beard wagged backwards and forwards as he whispered long in Bingo's ear. The fire burned low again, but suddenly, in the darkness, an unexpected sound rang out. Bingo was rocking with laughter. So there we have it. 
Gandalf originally came up with the idea for um, the party. Um, this was all going to be in the in the forward to the book, but importantly, hopefully, this episode has gone some way to show how the professor's thoughts about the ring and how the ring of the Hobbit was to change into something far more, um, far more important, and the ring of the Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings, which is now, you know, as I've as I've shown, um, a, you know, a, a a actual thing. You know, it's in the text. How this ring was gonna was gonna change where the story went and how it unfolded. Okay, so next week we will, having taken a bit of a sidestep today, we will go back to the third of the original three chapters. Uh, and we'll see what happens after Bingo has woken up the, the morning after the night before when he'd met Gildor. Okay, so the next episode we'll look at Two Maggots Farm and Buckland. It's a good one. I'm really looking forward to getting down and, and talking about that one uh, with you all. But... The fire is, is crackling away and I am going to, I think, go and raid, the, raid the, the larder and see if there's any food. I'm hungry. So I'm going to say bye. Before I do, thanks to my wonderful co-host James and May. Can't wait to podcast with the two of you uh, on the main show again. Thank you to everyone in our Facebook group, uh, The Green Door Podcast, and also on Twitter massive support not just for the main show but also for for this little show as well so big thank you to everyone uh, and i think that's me done so i'm gonna say bye this is second breakfast 